If you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, 1 Samuel chapter 6, in our text, the Philistines had captured the ark of God, but it was causing them no end of problems. They were thrown into a panic, their idol, Dagon, had fallen prostrate before the ark. Tumors were breaking out on the people and the leaders. And so they were desperate to get rid of the ark of God. Desperate to send it back to Israel. There was a deathly panic amongst the Philistines. And so we pick up in chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box aside the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beshemesh. Now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this history, we pray we would reap from it, that we would be encouraged, that your spirit would 
open our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes uh, to see and to rejoice and to receive what you have for us this morning. We invite you to meet and to do your work in us, conforming us to the image of your son. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're in my pew. Some of you have thought that quite often over the last number of months, haven't you? It's nearly impossible to get your old pew, your pre-COVID pew. Don't you want to just sometimes say, move it, don't you? I see some of you sometimes wandering the aisles here looking for your spouse or your family. It's very disorienting. How many of you are in a different pew than you were last week? Put up your hand if you're in a different... Yeah, quite a few of you. It's quite an event to find your spouse or loved ones. Now, a few of you still manage to get your old pew. I don't know how you do it. You probably should put something, a little card together, five tips on getting your old pew or keeping it. Uh, Somehow you manage it. The rest of us, well, do you think it's just coincidence where you're sitting this morning? Do you think it's just a coincidence, those who are sitting beside you? Look around you. Go ahead. Probably have different people around you than you had last week. Look around, and even if you have the same pew, probably you have different people near you. Is this all a coincidence? The history that I've just read from 1 Samuel chapter 6 presents us with the possibility of a coincidence. There's panic in the Philistine cities. Dagon, their god, has fallen before the ark of Yahweh. Tumors have broken out. Mice are ravaging the crops in the land. And they want the ark of Yahweh, the ark of God, far from them. They want it gone. But how to do it? How to do it safely? And so the Philistines call for their priests and their diviners. Look at verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Now, diviners were an abomination to the Lord. They were, the scripture says, detestable to the Lord. They were forbidden in Israel. We don't know exactly what they did or how they did it. History is silent on that. But we know that they are associated with all that God hated. Listen to this passage in Deuteronomy and you'll get the idea. There shall not be found among you, that's Israel, anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or sorcery, or a charmer, or medium, or necromancer, anyone who choirs of the dead. These are abominations to the Lord. 
And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So everything that was detestable, everything that was awful and pagan, is associated with divination and the diviners. Israel was to listen not to diviners, but to the prophets of God that God provided, like Moses or Samuel himself. While these Philistine diviners are impressed with the danger that Yahweh has brought into their midst. And so their recommendation is to send ten golden images with the ark to appease Yahweh. They violate the first commandment of God. They make graven images of the tumors and the mice, five of each. And can you imagine making golden tumors? I mean, that in itself is considered an abomination. It's considered to be unclean, unclean part of the anatomy. And they direct the transport of the ark of God to go on a cart, which we also know is expressly forbidden in the Torah. So what they're doing is very synchronistic. They're mixing all of their magic. They're mixing their pagan practices and understanding with what they know about Yahweh or what they've heard. And it comes out all a mess in the end as they mix it all together to send the ark back to Israel. Verse 7 Look there. Now then, they say, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put in a box the figures of gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering. That's the golden tumors and the golden mice. So this team of cows have never been trained. They have never even had a yoke on them. They're complete new at this. And we wouldn't expect it to go very well at all. And not only that, they have calves. And and they are to be kept home. And they will be calling out for their, their mothers. If you've ever heard this, it's extremely loud. Up in Arnstein, we often would have these cows put beside us, and you could hear the calves from down the road calling for their mothers, and the mothers would line up at the fence. The cows would line up there. It's quite loud as their maternal instincts want to respond to the cries of their unweaned calves. And so if the cart with these cows continues on to Beth Shemesh against all odds because the cows don't know what they're doing and they want to go back to their calves. Well, they tell us that this would be Yahweh who's done it. But if not, look at verse 9. If it goes up the way to its own land, verse 9, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he that is Yahweh who's done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. 
It happened to us, look at this, by coincidence. By coincidence. If the cows go this way, it's Yahweh's doing. If they stay home with us, well, then it's all just a coincidence, all this that we're suffering All of this panic is for nothing. It's just a a coincidence. Well, the only time this word is used in the Hebrew text, the idea of fate or chance or coincidence is utterly foreign to the Hebrew mind. In the last number of weeks, we've considered the act of hand of God and we call it his unseen hand the unseen fingerprints of God that God works in mysterious ways we say and we call this providence his providence how God works through secondary causes but he himself is the first cause of all things And that there are no coincidences, utterly foreign to the Hebrew mind. There are no coincidences. John Calvin was on a trip and a bunch of soldiers blocked his journey, causing him to divert to Geneva. And in Geneva, he spent the rest of his life there in ministry. John Newton would write about being on the slave ship and how during an awful storm at sea, he was called forward to address something with the sail. And the captain stopped him to pick up a knife and another man went forward and was washed overboard. And John Newton would say, after he became a convert to Christ Jesus, he would say that he would keep that day and that hour, um, he would observe it every year of his life with prayer and fasting because he saw God's hand in it. It was no coincidence the captain called him and diverted him. Spurgeon, who was going to worship At a church, he was diverted by a snowstorm. It was an awful storm. It closed the church he intended to go. And so he was diverted to this other nearby church where he never would have gone in before. And there uh, was just him and the man at the front who had the text. This was the text that he heard. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon was converted to Christ there at that church. And he saw the unseen hand of God, God's mysterious workings, that there's no coincidences. The psalmist says this of God, you hem me in behind and before. That is, you surround me and you lay your hand upon me. So I'm, he, he has this picture of com- living out his life completely under the umbrella and care of God. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He, he just found it so comforting and so wonderful to know 
that God was leading him, guiding him. God does not allow for coincidences. You've thought at times, and you've probably heard people say, everything happens for a reason. Have you ever said that? Everything happens for a reason. Someone at work might even say that to you when they have some special event or something happens that's extraordinary to them and they're trying to process it and make sense of it. They say, everything happens for a reason. We could go further other than that. What we could say instead is God has a reason for everything that happens. It's not just that everything happens for a reason, but that God has a reason for everything that happens. And so if you hear someone saying that, there is a good pathway forward for you to bring God into the conversation. God has a reason for everything that happens. The administration of the universe down to the details of your life, your individual life, there's no place for serendipity, for chance, for fate, for flukes, coincidences. This is the thinking of pagans, you see. This is the thinking of atheists. It's it's the thinking of most of our contemporaries here in Canada. Your co-workers express themselves. They'll say, oh, that was some good luck. They'll say, oh, that was quite a remarkable coincidence. This is how they express themselves. This is how they talk. They, they talk about chances, my chance, my, my, my fate. Oh, but that was quite a fluke. When something remarkable happens to them, this is often how they express themselves with the language of godlessness. The language that doesn't recognize that there is a sovereign God who's powerful, who is exerting his will and his influence into his world and upon his creatures. The idea of fate or chance or coincidence should be utterly foreign to the Christian mind, to your mind. It has no place in your mind if you're a Christian. The psalmist says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O God, endures forever. We sang earlier of God being with me in the calm, with me in the storm. He's with me in the dark. He's with me at the dawn. All the pieces of our life from the beginning to the end we can trust him with. He hems us in. He leads and guides. You know, it's often easier, isn't it, to see behind than ahead. As we look back in our lives, well, we don't look back to Egypt. We don't look back in disobedience to Sodom. We don't look back when we've taken up the plow. But when we do look back in our life, it befits us, and it's a good thing to look back to consider and see God's hand in our life. 
to admire it, to recognize it where you can, and where his mysterious outworking is evident to you, where his invisible influence was guiding you and directing you. And so we're thankful. When we look back, we should be filled with gratitude to God. No matter what we've come through, and even on the hard things, to see how he's brought us through, to look back with gratefulness and thankfulness to him, to remember the wonders that he has done in your own life. Charlene and I were reminiscing this week about how the Lord led Charlene and I to People's Church. And Harvey Carter, Harvey and Avis, they had a cottage up in Loring. And from time to time, there were some people from People's Church would go up and visit him or be invited there and stay. And he'd bring them to church on Sunday. And I suppose one day, Henry showed up at the church up in Arnstein and I don't remember meeting him, but years later when People's Church was looking for a pastor, Henry remembered Charlene and I and the elders sent a letter up to see if we would be interested in meeting and talking together. And Charlene and I said, no. We said no. We didn't sense that it was it was God's will for us. I was involved in a community water project and the installation of it, and it was a, a big thing, and it couldn't just be given over to somebody else. And, and a, a church lady was sick, and we wanted to be there for her, and I was on the fire team, and there were some things that needed to be seen to, and, and we prayed, and we thought, and it just didn't seem right to us, and and we decided it wasn't God's will. But about nine months later, the church saint had passed away. I did her funeral. The water project was done and installed. The fire team issues were dealt with, accomplished. And one day, to our utter surprise, Charlene and I realized that God was releasing us from the Arnstein Church. We've been there eight years and we sort of expected to be buried there one day. And so we were surprised that we both, oh, we're done here. And we just sensed that. And we had a sense of gratitude as we looked back, and as we looked ahead, uh, we were trusting him. Um, we thought, what should we do um, about Harvey? <laughs> so we contacted Harvey. We assumed People's Church had a pastor, um, but we just wanted to honor his intent. And People's Church, I guess, wasn't looking very hard because immediately uh, things started falling into place and, and there's no coincidences. 
God's working and plans, and, and here we are, uh, expecting to be buried in this area instead. <laughs> here we are, 22 years later. I'm older, I'm heavier, I'm grayer. Charlene is exactly the same as she was 22 years ago. But Charlene and I see it as obvious to us that it was God's will and God's leading in mysterious ways. And we just look back with gratitude for that as we see his providence. I mean, the providence of God unfolds in all sorts of ways. In one way is he prevents, it's called preventive providence, where he keeps us from doing something. He keeps somebody, maybe you, from going somewhere, like, like, like Spurgeon diverted or, or Newton diverted. He, 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 it's preventative providence, it's called, where we're kept in a special way. Maybe kept from sinning or going through that door or going to that place or taking that first drink or, or whatever it is. In some wonderful way, he prevents. Then there's something called permissive providence where God permits things in our life. He doesn't prevent them. He permits them. He lets us go through them and experience them. Hezekiah, when he took the uh, Babylonian ambassadors through the temple and showed him all the treasures. The scripture says something interesting, that, that God left him to himself in order to test him. You see, permissive providence is often that way. It's a time of testing. God permits things to see. How are we going to respond to them? It might even be sickness, like Paul's thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. He he, he may permit sickness. He might permit all sorts of trials and storms in our life to see how we respond to them in faith, in trust, Then there's something called influential providence. And this is just the influence of God going out in ways that we don't understand. Uh, Think of in Egypt when the exodus was about to happen. And the scripture says how how, uh, the ladies in Egypt were just basically giving their jewels and all of their riches over uh, to the Hebrews. And it says that the God did this, right? God influenced them. The scripture says of kings that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, he influences the leadership to go in certain directions. He stirred up the heart of the king of Persia, Cyrus. And the outworking of that was eventually the temple of God was reestablished in Jerusalem. God used his influence, influential providence. Or there's something called determinative providence. The good way to remember this is think of tomatoes. <laughs> you know tomatoes come with determinate tomatoes or 
indeterminate tomatoes. Determinate simply means there's a boundary. It's determined how big they're going to grow. Well, indeterminate, they'll just keep growing like vines until the frost comes. So a determinate providence is simply that God sets boundaries for us to live in or to operate under. Um, There might be some latitude and, and lots of places we can roam within certain boundaries that he sets up. He set that boundary in regards to Job that Satan could not touch his his uh, life. Uh, or when Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. There are boundaries that are set and within his perfect will. The Lord sovereignly, powerfully, may prevent you from something. He may permit something in your life. He may influence for a particular outcome. And he may determine boundaries, boundaries of suffering, boundaries of testing. At every fork in the road, he's the God of every path. That didn't occur to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6, whether they stayed home or whether they left, it was all God's doing, never occurred to the pagans, that nothing happens by chance. There are no coincidences. God has a reason for everything that happens. Think back on those of you who are Christians. Think back to your conversion and how how God orchestrated that, how God brought that moment into being when you repented of your sins and understood that Christ was the Son of God and the only one who can save you through his death in your place. And that forgiveness of your sins came through his shed blood, through him, and the hope of eternal life came through his resurrection. When you came to that moment in that conversion moment, for some of you, it was a process. You can, for some of you, it was, you, you tripped over the treasure in the field. But for every Christian, you can see God's hand as you look back to the people who spoke to you, the scriptures that were open to you, the trials that you were going through. deep darkness of the soul perhaps as you came to terms with your your sins and your fallenness and began to understand the grace of God and as you look back you give him thanks and as a as a child of of his now in Christ Jesus you Walk in his spirit and you know that he establishes your steps, that he'll make your paths straight, that he works all things together for your good. He hems you in behind and before. His hand is on top of you. He's all around you, ushering you through life. Even your mistakes, even your sins, 
while we bear consequence, even he's able to bring something good even out of that. You know, we tend to spend most of our times, most of our days anxious about what has happened or anxious about what could happen. <laughs> uh, and we often miss living in the moment, don't we? Because we're, we're so concerned about what happened or what could happen, we, we fail to, to really appreciate today. Today that has enough trouble of its own. That God is leading today in the present today. And as we look at the past and the future, I mean, it's just really an expression of our desire to be in control. Oh, we like to, to think we're in control. We like to predict <laughs> where, what, if they say this, I'm going to say this, and if they do this, I'm going to do this, and we can have it all worked out and hasn't even happened, never will. All that energy gone. We like to predict where our path is taking us. We live in fear of not knowing where things are going or where things will lead. We, we, we want to control it. And really, God's providence reminds us that we're not in control. That we're not in control. And we can't predict. And we can lay down our fear. You see, as you look back in your life, you look back and, and you see his hand and you say, thank you. And as you look ahead, you expect his faithfulness. And so you will trust him. You, you, you thank him and you trust him. You know, I'm, I think I'm grateful that I don't know what God has planned for me tomorrow. I don't think I'd go out the front door, right? I wouldn't have the courage to go out the front door if I knew what God was planning. <laughs> and you're the same. Let's bow for a moment, and we'll just consider this before the Lord. In fact, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to come up and just stand at the front, because you want to say thank you to God for something in your past where you see his hand and you're just so grateful and you're, you're, you're amazed. You see the people who spoke to you, who loved you, cared for you. You see things clearer now and you want to say thank you to God. Or perhaps looking ahead, you need to say, I'm, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I don't know what's coming. Uh, I'm fearful. I want to control it, but I can't. But, I, but you're in charge, Lord, and I'm, I'm going to trust you. Whether it's to be thankful for something in your past or trusting for something in the future, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, just to come down. I'm just going to pray for you. That's all I'm going to do. And come down and just stand at the front. If you have something be thankful for you want to just say that by getting out of your pew just come ahead right now would you or if there's something you just want to say I'm trusting you for God I'm trusting you for this and I don't know where it's going I'm afraid 
I don't know where it's going to lead, but you're faithful and true. You've always been that way. Just come, come forward. If you're in the overflow room, just go to the front of the room there, even now, and just get out of your seat and thank you for trusting. I mean, God, you're so good providentially. He's good in all the storms and trials of life. And, and so often, Lord, we send out our cows and we say, well, it can't be your will for me to suffer. It can't be your will for me to go through this. Maybe your f- some failures are haunting you or world events are oppressing you or trials are weighing you down. Heavenly Father, those who are at the front here and in the other room, we just remember that in the day of prosperity, we are joyful. And in the day of adversity, we consider you have made the one as well as the other. We acknowledge, dear Lord, that you have a reason for everything that happens. And those who have come, Lord, just wanting to say thank you. Hear their heart, hear their mind and their words, Lord, as they just see your hand in special ways. And it's not that it was easy. It's not that it wasn't filled with trepidation and fear. But they see now what you were doing. And they just are saying, thank you, God, with grateful hearts. And some father who have come up are looking ahead and and are trusting that you are still the same God, faithful and true. And they are trusting you for what's coming, trusting you for tomorrow and the day after and the month ahead, the year ahead, trusting you to usher them through the pitfalls and the, the painful things that perhaps they're going through, trusting you. Oh, you are so faithful and true, Father. And our trust is well-placed when it's placed in you. And so for each who came forward, especially, Lord, we ask for grace upon them. We ask that today would be a day of peace and rest and joy in the Lord because you lead us. Oh, blessed thought, whatever I do, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Thank you, Father, for visiting us. Thank you. Draw glory to yourself through us in the days ahead. And we pray together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, each one who came forward. Just invite you if you want to stay or go back to your pew. And we're going to finish now with a hymn.